Nisam Bulvinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Ngo or Koroi Hawkins. Coming up... The Ministry of Health told me that a hundred of their workers have tested positive. Marshalls reports first COVID-19 death as community outbreak worsens. So the, the bribery issue is a, is a very, very big one, significant for Tonga. We look at the ramification for Tonga's government after the unseating of three senior cabinet ministers and... It hasn't been um, an easy journey for me through this path. Pacifica women in leadership are recognised in New Zealand. The Marshall Islands has recorded its first COVID-19 death. The deceased was a young man who was sick for a week before contracting the virus. The health ministry says the man died on arrival at the Majuro Hospital. The ministry is appealing to Marshallese people to treat each other with kindness as the Pacific nation tries to contain a community outbreak that was only detected this week. Joining me is RNZ Pacific's correspondent in the Marshall Islands, Giff Johnson. Bula, and thank you for joining us, Giff. How did this all start? Okay, so the Marshall Islands had remained COVID-free for the entire pandemic, a rather incredible thing, and was one of, like, as far as I know, only two countries with Tuvalu that, as of uh, this past weekend, were still COVID-free. Little did we know that COVID was lurking in the background, and Monday, uh, a family uh, parents brought their two kid, two boys into the hospital because they weren't feeling well. And the hospital staff had already started doing random COVID tests because there have been so many repatriation groups coming in and just, you know, all, all in managed quarantine, but the numbers have gotten very large. So they've just gone to random testing as a, as a you know, checkup to see if anything's going on. And lo and behold, the two boys tested positive. They repeated the test positive. They brought the parents in, tested them positive. So the alarm bell rang, the protocol kicked in. They tested all the people in the hospital, one nurse, one doctor positive. Then they start checking people in the wards, few patients positive, and we're just rolling from there. And that was August 8th, uh, and we're, we're three days into it now. And the wave is building and it's like everywhere else. And if we look at what's happened in the Federated States of Micronesia, uh, our neighbor, uh, which was hit with COVID uh, in the middle of July, uh, um, you know, three, several weeks before they opened their borders and it just took off. And this is, this is Omicron BA5 and it's contagious and we hope it's not as you know as as deadly as some of the other variants, but this thing spreads just everybody's saying it's just like wildfire. So I think we're really starting to see it now uh, uh, into day three or four. I mean, the Ministry of Health told me that a hundred of their workers have tested positive. So you get the idea. I mean, this is a small place, so that's really affected their ability to provide services. But it's starting to play out. Like I went to the post office this morning. Uh, I mean, pretty much everything has been business as usual. Everybody's masked up, you know, social distancing, like things have gone into place. And people here are fabulous about the masks. 
nobody's complaining. Everybody just jumped to it. They're all masked up. People, a lot of people wearing gloves and things like that. So I go to the post office. Oh, they're closed. I got a, uh, in my box is a slip for some boxes. I see the customs guy. He's got a shield on. He's walking out. I say, hey, what's up? Oh, a bunch of the post office people tested positive late yesterday. So they just shut down. So you can't get mail now for a day or two. So we'll see. I mean, but it's rolling and it's just, I would expect it to get a lot worse in, you know, in terms of just people not being able to come to work and, and so on. Uh, but we're in very early days at this point. Now, um, the country's scheduled to open to the world on the 1st of October. Um, is that is that still on track as far as announcements that have been made? Okay, so the, the, the Marshall Islands had said some months back, October 1 was the day to open the borders and has been kind of gearing for that. But, but here's what happened. With the outbreak of COVID on Monday confirmed, uh, and there were, there were uh, people already in quarantine centers on Madro, uh, and the ministry and the National Disaster Committee made the call that it was pointless to keep people in now that COVID was, there was community spread. Uh, and if people were positive, the, the, they were told to isolate at home for five days and then check, test, and see. But essentially, they opened up the doors Tuesday. They released everybody from quarantine, okay? So the quarantine, because they needed the, the nurses and the staff back at the hospital and out in the community doing the test and treat stuff, uh, because what they've done is they, well, that's the, the latest development is, they're trying to keep people out of the hospital, right? So the hospital essentially is shut down. And this follows the experience of other places where you don't want all these COVID positive people coming into the hospital because that's the worst case for inpatients. So there's, they've set up so far three community test to treat sites. They're kind of messy at this point. They're really overcrowded. So many people are showing up. So they've got logistics issues. You know, it's the first day. Yesterday was the first day. Long lines, hot sun, people standing out, you know. So they're trying to get that sorted. Um, but they've got the right idea. If they can get the logistics down, they plan to open up three more community sites where people can go in, get tested. Uh, and they've got tons of Paxlovid and other therapeutic medications. So, I mean, they, you know, and they're using it. I mean, it's being given out to people and with good results in terms of mitigating symptoms. Uh, so, so these things are happening and we've got, like there were supposed to be some CDC, US Centers for Disease Control people coming in today. There's supposed to be a surge, medical surge support team coming in next week. And this is what the CDC did for Palau and the Federated States of Micronesia. You know, we're all U.S. affiliated, a very close relationship. And the CDC has just been absolutely fabulous in working with the islands in the U.S. affiliated areas. So they're providing lots of support and, and like, a, a big new shipment of Paxlovid is coming in early next week. And so, you know, things are happening, but on the ground, it's going to be messy just in terms of, you know, that we've sat here, no masks, 
just minding our own business, going to parties and church and enjoying life for two and a half years while the rest of the world has been exactly in what we're in now. And so <laughs> we're the latest ones to experience. And now we're just, you know, people are kind of coming to terms with it. Tonga's Deputy Prime Minister was one of three ministers unseated on Wednesday in the Kingdom after the Supreme Court dismissed their appeals against convictions of election bribery. The MPs who have been unseated are Deputy Prime Minister Poissite, who also holds multiple ministerial portfolios, Finance Minister Tatafu Moyaki and Sangsta Saulala, Minister for Internal Affairs. All three were found guilty of bribing voters in Tonga's general election last year. Tonga's House Speaker, Lord Fatafehi Fakafonua, announced their departure in Parliament on Wednesday after receiving the Supreme Court's final judgment ordering the immediate termination of their tenures. Joining me is RNZ Pacific's Tongan correspondent, Kalafi Moala. Malilele Kalafi, tell us more about what happened on Wednesday. Well, we there were seven appeals altogether. Uh, four of those uh, appeals had to do with the fact that the Supreme Court has declared them guilty of bribery at uh, the election of 2021. And so those were the, the cases where a lot of the focus was, was on. And, and the other three appeals were actually uh, the Supreme Court uh, declared that they were not guilty. Uh, and, and the people who had sued them uh, make the appeals, and, and, and all those three appeals were declined. Uh, but the, the the real focus, of course, is on those four that were pronounced guilty of bribery, and uh, in the appeals, one of them uh, was uh, approved or accepted. His appeal was accepted, and that's the former Prime Minister of Tonga, uh, the Reverend Dr. Pogi Matui Onitoa. And he's from the Tongatapu number ten uh, district, and, and so he he he's been uh, his uh, appeal has been uh, approved or accepted. The other three, their appeals were declined, and so uh, they appeared in parliament and uh, uh, vacated their seat after making uh, like a, a thank you speech and making a, a kind of like a public apology. Uh, to what had happened. And and those were uh, very significant uh, guys who were uh, holding significant positions. For example, one of them is the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Boas Day. And not only is he the uh, Deputy Prime Minister, but he's the minister of one of the biggest uh, ministry or departments in, uh, in, in government. And that department is uh, it's got the environment, it's got information, uh, it's it's got a, a number of uh, of different things all packed in there. Uh, so uh, and he's also the minister of public enterprises. Uh, and then you have the minister of finance, the Tapu Moyaki. Uh, his appeal was uh, declined. And those are those two. The the two very, very senior uh, men in the cabinet, in the current government. And the third one was Tengsa Saulala, uh, who is the Minister of uh, Interior, uh, Internal Affairs. Uh, so uh, to, to lose 
three ministers uh, from from a cabinet has, has actually weakened the government and and I believe uh, has uh, created a a real crisis that they're going to have to decide what to do. Right. And is it just a crisis of leadership, but is, it, is there also a numbers issue in terms of holding on to power, or do they have more than enough to, to maintain? It's both. It's a, a number situation uh, because you, you, you lost the three, and they're going to have a uh, uh, by-election. And so if the, the people that come in from the by-election, if they are not from the circle, uh, of uh, supporters from uh, of the prime minister, then they three losing three from the circle of supporters. It's a it's a big number to lose, <laughs> and so it's not just a, a numbers issue; it's also a leadership issue. Uh, it really puts the prime minister in a very very difficult uh, position uh, because the, the, the people, the, the three people that he. Uh, in his cabinet, they are his appointment. And so the question, the public is reacting, the question is, why would you have chosen people that could have been guilty of bribery? And so that's a huge thing. The, the other factor, of course, that also needs to, you need to know is the fact that these three makes four cabinet ministers that have been, came out of the cabinet. The first one, actually, was a minister that died a couple of months ago, uh, and uh, he was the Minister of Agriculture. And so he, he's just been replaced, and then you've got these three. So essentially, you have had, you've got four ministers from this government that, that within two months they've been, they've, they've been out, and uh, I think that's very significant. Just looking at back over Tonga's political history, are there comparisons? Has this happened before? This has never happened before in our history. And we're looking back, in fact, for the last hundred years, and those of us that have observed closely the political history of Tonga, this has never happened. And, uh, and, and especially now, we have had three that have uh, this has happened to them. The other thing, too, that's quite significant, there has never been, uh, on record at least, uh, um, a, a bribery charge that has been given to someone uh, running for office. And so the, the bribery issue is a, is a very, very big one, significant for Tonga. Pacifica Women in Leadership across New Zealand have been recognised at the Women in Governance Awards held recently at Parliament. The awards honour the achievements of women who are making a difference to achieving gender and cultural diversity on public and private sector organisational boards. Susana Suizuiki reports. The big winner of the night was Samoan-born Miliane Burgess. Having been nominated in the previous Women in Governance Awards, Miliane says she sensed something positive was going to come out the second time round. As the only Pacifica woman in the Rising Governance Star category, the Waikato-based chartered accountant says she was in disbelief when she was announced as the winner. I had a mind-blank moment, to be honest. I thought of those that have supported me through the journey that I'm on because it it hasn't been um, an easy journey for me through this path and the boards that I sit on 
and then the thoughts of my family and and the supporters that I had with me on the night. Taking home the Gender Diverse Organisation Leader Award, We Accounting is more than just an accounting firm. The couple behind the business, Wendy and Eli Tangi, says We Accounting is driven to help Māori and Pacifica people understand finances better and reduce the impacts of poverty among the community. Wendy Tangi says stepping into governance felt right, as it had further her and her husband's cause to changing people's lives. When I started to get opportunities to go onto boards and stuff like that, I just thought, oh yeah, this sounds like what we can do just to further what it is that we're already doing and to to make a difference and to create an impact. So I feel like I just found it was a strength of mine. Wellington-based consultant Millie Wentz has been in governance for 25 years across 20 different entities. Winning the Not-for-Profit Governance Leader Award on the night, Millie has championed equity in the not-for-profit sector at both regional and national level. However, despite her impressive accomplishments, Millie says her presence on boards has been with scepticism, something she still experiences to this day. In professional roles that are normally filled by you know, older Palangi men, and in board roles that are usually filled by older Palangi people, have presented multitudes, a multitude of challenges. You know, people underestimate your abilities, um, they talk over you, there's subtle racism or misogyny or, you know, sexist attitudes or whatever. Um, it's often very subtle, but it's even now, you know, I, I encounter it um, occasionally. Mele says for an organisational board to be truly impactful, it needs members from all walks of life. Good governance absolutely requires diversity of thought and you can't get diversity of thought if everybody around the table is palangi you know you do need a range of ethnicities of age ages of different backgrounds different religions just difference you know you have need to have different lived experience different world views and you can't get that if everybody's of the same particular ethnicity the same age etc So it's just a fundamental requirement. If you want to have a really effective board, you need some diversity around the board table. She hopes that the Pacifica winners from the awards can be a source of encouragement for other Pacifica women to take up governance roles. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. More than one up.